This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state, and by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone, and thanks for listening. Who wins when we win is a question Jerry and I have posed since early on on our show. We answered this by talking about how important access to healthy food is to both health outcomes as well as educational outcomes. After all, if we aren't well fed, we'll never be well read. Another idea we posed is about who should care about food security in the business community. The healthier a community, the more stable and empowered the people are to do life and that includes business. Businesses thrive in healthy communities and we are interested in furthering this partnership across the business sector. Today our guest grew up in a business where food was centric and is now working in government relations with the Midwest Independent Retailers Association. Juan Escarino serves with me on the Food Security Council and he volunteered to do so. He is a businessman, government relations professional, and understands the connection between food, community, and business. It is our belief that healthy things grow, and that includes food, kids, communities, and yes, businesses too. We're back in just a moment when Jerry joins me, and we both welcome Juan Escarino to our show, and a special surprise at the end of the show And there are at least 1.9 trillion reasons why you should stay tuned for our last segment. Jerry and I are back in just a moment. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. Jerry Brisson joins me with our guest, Juan Escarino. Juan, welcome to the show. And Jerry, nice to see you, too. Always good to be here, Doctor. Anytime I'm with you, it's a good day. Good day. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, it's great to have you. So I think, Juan, you and I served together on the Food Security Council. We want to talk about that a little later in the show. But as I I introduced you in the monologue, you have a really unique background here uh, that we got to explore and share uh, on a a Zoom call recently. So that's why I thought that you're in a unique position to look at this issue of food security across the state. So, So this is your moment, if you can tell us your story. Gosh, uh, when I was a child, my dad actually owned two grocery stores, two Mexican ethnic grocery stores outside of Chicago. I worked seven days a week in a grocery store, stocking shelves, moving boxes, uh, ringing up the register. Uh, I learned how to, how to cut meat at the age of 11. I learned all the aspects of, of the grocery store as I was growing up, and it was, became a part of who I am. Eventually, my, my dad was at the point where he, he was ready to retire and wanted, wanted to see if I wanted the grocery store. And, and I saw how hard he worked and the time commitment it takes to, to run a grocery store. And I said, no, no way for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, he worked 12, 13-hour days, seven days a week. And 
Uh, and he did that because he wanted to provide a, a, a middle class for me and my brothers. So when I see grocery store owners today, I understand the commitment they have to their job and the sacrifice they have they have to give so that they can provide for their families and, and for their employees. And from there, I got involved in community organizing. I became a professional organizer on, uh, in Chicago. So I, I went from you know, working at a grocery store to learning how to become a professional organizer. And so I, I was organizing community groups and churches and uh, on the south suburbs of Chicago and on the south side of Chicago. And, and eventually that led me here to Detroit. And I worked with uh, uh, Moses, the Metropolitan Organizing Strategy Enabling Strength, for a few years. And... Uh, worked on multiple issues there and uh, began working on food justice. And so that brought me back around to, to the whole issue of food access and understanding the, the, the plight of grocery store owners sometimes. And then from there, I, uh, I ended up working at a union that deals with retail workers. And so I've, I've been able to work on both sides of the aisle. The, you know, on the ownership, I understand the ownership side and I understand the challenges that workers face in the, in the retail environment. And uh, being an organizer in Detroit and an organizer in Chicago, I also see it from a community aspect, what food access does to a community and how that also impacts the grocery store operations. Just They hired me as a government and community relations director for Mira, so I'm able to bring together that community training aspect that I've had, the ownership aspect and uh, you know the, the labor side of this thing. And so I think I could bring together pieces that s- some folks haven't been able to bring together. Man, I can't agree more. That's an incredible background. I know many of the agencies that you mentioned that that you've worked at, and I know they've done some awesome work. And uh, you know, uh, we've we've done things with Moses for for a long time. Gosh, I'm trying to remember the first time I I got to know them. I mean, Bill O'Brien is someone <laughs> I've known for I'm gonna say 30 years probably. So uh, well, so there's quite a tradition at that organization, and and certainly a lot of of tradition at the one you're at now so what an incredible influence you've had yeah and you could blame bill o'brien for bringing me to to uh detroit is it did he meet you in chicago <laughs> yeah yes yeah, so i was organizing in chicago and he needed a bilingual organizer and he invited me over to uh to organize for a couple weeks here and i fell in love with the city and uh he was uh brave enough to give me an opportunity to work here in detroit <laughs> and uh, i haven't you know i've been here since well, great story, and it's a small world, I guess I would just say. That's, uh, that's wonderful. So, so you got to Detroit, and what, do you, what, do you, what would you say your biggest priorities are now? Well, today versus a year ago is very different, right? I, I think COVID is the biggest impact right now that grocery stores are facing and trying to help our, our members be compliant and safe and uh, ensuring that they cross their, their T's and they dot their I's, not just because it's the, the law or the rules, but, but because it's the right thing to do. Nobody started in the grocery store industry with the idea that they were an essential worker or an essential operation. I think there's more responsibility now in them, uh, being that there's this uh, understanding that we can't eat without a grocery store, and so they have to acknowledge that and, and behave in that manner. Right. He's Juan Escarino. He's our guest today. He is the government relations for the Midwest Independent Retailers Association, also known as MIRA. That's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and we're back in just a moment. You folks come back and be with us, too.
contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here, and Juan Escarino is our guest. Juan is the uh, government relations um, officer, uh, vice president. I'm quite. I'm not quite sure, but I know you're the guy that deals with the government for MIRA, the Midwest uh, Independent Retailers Association. And Juan, we're excited to have you on the show, and I'm excited that you're a part of the governor's food security council. And uh, you know, I was kind of voluntold to do that, but it sounds like you volunteered. So what's that story, and why would you do that? Uh, there's always going to be a community organizer in me. Uh, I mean, that's uh, I'm always going to look out for the little guy. That's one reason why I like working for the independent retailers, because they're the little guys when it comes to grocery stores. I think it's uh, David versus Goliath, and I, I always like to be on David's side. And I always like to tell people, grocery store is the most democratic institution in America, because the grocery store is going to sell exactly what the people want. Any grocery store that doesn't sell what the people want is going to go out of business. But there's two sides to that, right? One is the ownership side is the owners are going to sell what people want. A lot of these guys have been doing this long enough where they could easily just pack up and go to the suburbs, and they've, they've fought to stay in Detroit, and, they, uh, and they're invested in the city. Uh, so I want people to know that story. But also on the other side is I want people to, to have access to good food. With food comes dignity, right? And uh, choice, with choice comes dignity. And allowing somebody to walk into a grocery store and be able to choose what they want to buy, regardless of what position in life they're in, regardless of what the resources are or, or who's providing those resources, they should be able to decide whether they want to buy a, a bag of potato chips or, or a bag of apples. But when they buy those bag of apples, uh, the grocer has some responsibility with that too, just as much as they do with the potato chip. So that's why I sit on the console. So, so connecting all the dots here, right? You've got the food security council that's really tasked with understanding how do we grapple with this complex problem. And you represent a group of grocers that are, in many cases, in some of the areas where access to food is one of the deeper challenges, you know, that people are are really, you know, figuring out on a day-in, day-out basis, how do I get to where the food is? And so when you put all those things together, what would you say are the greatest challenges that your industry is facing around these issues of food access and neighborhoods and, and all those sorts of things? Again, with COVID being the lens, right, of, of, of a lot of challenges, I mean, staffing is a big issue. Uh, finding people who are willing to do the job is becoming a big challenge. And stores have to cut their hours, and they have to cut back on their services when they can't find enough employees. That hurts the neighborhoods they serve. Uh, the other challenge attached to that is uh, some of these stores have been around 50, 60, 70 years. They invested money and resources into these stores and into their employees, and they don't get the same amount of benefits that a big chain gets when they come in, right? And I don't have to, I won't name any, but if a big chain comes to Detroit, they're going to get the tax breaks. They're going to get the tax abatements over the next 10 years. And it's an unlevel playing field. Uh, you got one guy who started Monopoly with $20 and the other guy started with, with $1,000. It's, it's going uh, to be hard to catch up at the end of the day. That impacts directly the, the consumer who shops in the grocery stores because now this guy is not going to get the same uh, the same benefit that some big chain gets from coming in down the street. And so the level of service is going to diminish because of that. 
So, so when you think about the Food Security Commission and what what that can do to help solve that problem, what would you say your hope is? My biggest hope from all this is that we create a first of all an understanding, right? That that everybody's key to this, and uh, and this is where I appreciate that the governor has me on this council because there's a partnership here, right? And I I want everybody to understand that at the end of the day, that the only way neighborhoods get healthy food and they get access to good food is when they when they have retailers who are willing to partner and are willing to take that risk to go into neighborhoods nobody else wants to go into that's one of my hopes and uh the other hope too is that from this we we come up with some concrete policy changes for that will impact the food chain in a positive way i, I would like to see more more local buying more local sourcing and and resources for those for those people who want to create that infrastructure uh, so that they can succeed, because the local grower, the local producer faces the same challenges as an independent retailer. They don't have the resources that a big uh, Fortune 500 company has when they want to create a new product. If anything, shown with COVID is that we have to take care of our our food chain at the local level just as much as at the national level. We have to be able to have uh, the ability to get apples and or whatever it is at a local level in a, an efficient and in safe way, because. Who knows what happens uh, within this pandemic? Who knows how deep the cuts will be with the supply chain? The issue of staffing doesn't just impact retailers; it impacts the whole food chain, all the way all the way down to to the farmer. I know that's kind of a long-winded answer, but that's uh, that's my thoughts on it. That means there's a lot to hope for, and we're all about <laughs> hope on this show. Let me just say so. Uh, you know, very interesting. Lots of things to think about when you talk about complex problems. One of my favorite little sayings is the less you know about a problem, the easier it is to solve, right? <laughs> that means the more you know, the harder it is, and you're working on some pretty tough issues there. Well, it's great to have you on, and we're really excited that you're a part of the Food Security Council. Your perspective, as I said, is unique. It's uh, it's spot on, and um, I think, you know, the next time I introduce you, I'm just going to tell you, say your name and say, also known as David. Because <laughs> <laughs> it looks like you're a giant killer to me. <laughs> so it's, it's great to have you on the show, brother. We want to we have you back again at another time, and uh, thanks for how you're serving and investing your one handful of life. Well, I want to thank you, Phil, for this opportunity, and I appreciate that. Juan Escarino, he is the government relations for the Midwest Independent Retailers Association. We're back in just a moment. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Carrie Calvert joins us from Feeding America on our government relations team. Carrie, the last time you were on the show, bingo, you hit the nail on the head and predicted the outcome of the presidential election flawlessly. So congratulations. Jerry owes you money. <laughs> Interesting, interesting. Well, I will say that I remember both Jerry and I predicted the ultimate outcome of the election. Can't quite remember which one of us was closer to the actual electoral college vote. And I must say none of us predicted January 6th. So um, we can call it a draw, maybe. 
Yeah. Um, right. but, uh, a, a lot well, has happened since the last time I was on your show. So thank you for having me back. Well, thanks for being here. And, um, of course, the thing that's on our mind uh, is the $1.9 trillion um, uh, proposal from the president. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to say that we're concerned, but I guess I'm going to say we're a little concerned. Um, so talk to us about what's in there and maybe what's not in there. Sure, sure. So uh, the Biden administration has proposed a $1.9 trillion American relief plan to provide urgent um, funding for both, um, you know, COVID-19 vaccination efforts to make sure that state and local governments have the funding they need to run vaccination clinics and get vaccine to communities, but also to provide much needed relief to those impacted economically by COVID-19. Um, it does include uh, you know, say extension of unemployment insurance benefits and, and other important economic supports for, for people impacted by the pandemic. It also includes uh, proposals to address food assistance. Um, one of the things we've been trying to figure out and um, my crystal ball is broken, um, maybe I need to, to try the magic eight ball these days, but you know, I know the administration and Congress have both said, we wanna provide needed relief right now and we also want to provide economic stimulus to make sure the economy recovers. You know, one of the things that's been, we know now, when you look at the 2008 recession and the recovery, you know, certain jobs and, and wage sectors recovered faster, right? right. And when you look at um, the sectors of the economy that have been really impacted by COVID-19, travel, service-based um, jobs, things like that. A lot of those jobs can be lower wage to begin with. So how do we make sure that we're giving, you know, um, that we're really ensuring whatever economic recovery happens as the pandemic wanes is a recovery that all participate in? Um, you know, so we don't have the benefit of knowing what that broader stimulus thing will be from the, mm. that proposal will be from the Biden administration. So, um, you know, the American Relief Plan is a great start, but I feel like it's only part of the story, if that makes sense, right? You know, right. what's the urgent relief that's needed right now? So for instance, the bill would extend the increase in SNAP benefits that was just finally passed by Congress in December, you know, instead of it expiring at the end of June, uh, it would extend it through the end of September. Well. That's great because I really don't think the need for increased SNAP benefits will go away by the end of June. I also don't right. think it's going to go away by the end of September. And we know from the 2008 um, recession and the stimulus bill and the Obama administration that the increase in SNAP benefits not only helped reduce food insecurity and lift people out of poverty over the next few years, you know, from 2010, 2008 through 2011 and 12, it also helps stimulate local economies, right? Mm. So um, again, that is great that this bill is going to, um, you know, uh, extend the increase in SNAP benefits through September, but we're gonna need more to get through this pandemic and economic recovery. So we're really, our asks are more centered around what's needed for immediate relief and the recovery. Um, so, you know, to, we're thrilled that the SNAP increase is in there and we say yes, please, but also 
let's ensure that that support is there for families and individuals, you know, throughout the recovery as well. Um, you know, there's not direct assistance in this bill for uh, food assistance for food banks. Partly that's a reflection of the fact that the December bill included $400 million for TFAP. And I'll be honest, uh, you know, how fast can USDA work with a, you know, supply chain that has had some shortages, you know, good luck purchasing canned vegetables right now across the country. You know, it's pretty hard for a lot of food banks to get access to the food they need. So um, it's partly a reflection of the fact that uh, the supply chain is just a little iffy right now. And also the and fact it, that- And Carrie, is, is that more of a, a processing issue uh, than a, 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 a real food supply issue? Like, is there not enough vegetables or is there not enough cans? Sorry yeah. to make it so elementary, yeah. but I think when you when we talk about a shortage in the supply chain, you know, yeah. that sends up red flags for everybody. So could you right. just articulate that for us? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for calling that out, Phil. I'd say it's a yellow caution flag, but not a red flag. It's not a shortage of food. It's a shortage of food and the sizes and the types that people need, right? Right, so, right. Um, you know, it's why I still have a, a food service size bag of um, confectioner sugar in my pantry that I bought last March. It's the only thing I could find, and I needed some <laughs> confectioner sugar, and I'm still working my way through it. So, right. um, you know, if food banks wanted to go out and buy like number 10 bulk canned vegetables right now, that's available. There's not a lot of, you know, congregate feeding happening right now in a pandemic, go figure. There's also, right. you know, food service has seen a major slowdown. So all of the food that would move through the food service sector, you know, those producers right. are trying to figure out what to do. Sure. Um, and so as USDA is trying to purchase food, uh, to your point, there's an aluminum shortage. That's what they make, you know, and that is needed to produce canned vegetables. So yeah. it's been harder to get that right now. But, um, you know, it is more we, possible to buy fresh fruits and vegetables. We addressed that in the Food Security Council uh, in our initial report for Governor Whitmer about um, could we could we take talk to processors who could take this food safely that's already packaged in number ten cans and industrial size and repackage those into something that's more family friendly. Mm -hmm. We took the idea from the what she had the automobile makers here in Detroit. Um, shift and pivot to start making uh, PPE. So mm -hmm. that's one of the recommendations where we got a group study in that now. And um, of course, the guy who knows about buying food is uh, is is the co-host of this show because uh, Gleaners is you guys have kind of set the pace for our network, Jerry, in, in purchasing food. Yeah, I'll tell you this. We're glad that with the people that we work the most with, we are months in advance of when we actually need shipment so that we can be, you know, in that food supply. When there's changes, we know we've got our stuff guaranteed, and that's been hugely, hugely helpful. But not every food bank has the ability to do that, and uh, we've, been, we've been using low-cost purchase food to supplement donated food for many years we have a lot of really strong relationships as a result, but we're certainly experiencing some of what you were talking about, Carrie. I think our biggest concern really has to do with, I mean, two aspects of the relief bill. One is 
it doesn't replace the trade mitigation food that we were getting from the USDA, and and that's the December relief bill I'm talking about, right? It mm-hmm. it did extend the relief that was coming through the pandemic relief, but not mm-hmm. the other things that we were getting. So already yeah. in January, we knew December was going to be a kind of a food cliff from the USDA, and it happened. We're two million pounds less than the month before, something yeah. like that, and and none of that is related to pandemic relief that's related to other types of relief that the usda was was providing because of the uh, trade you know war if you want to call it that with china that is still ongoing right and so we have this you know this momentary confusion about what's ended and what's going to start and what is it going to look like and even the money that was just uh approved in december there's no real clarity how that's going to work itself through the pipeline and so there's just uh it's a really strange time and so now with this new relief bill there's nothing in it (laughs) yeah right well and and i you know um Members of Congress have lots of ideas. I mean, um, the senior senator and now the the chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee, uh, you know, Michigan's own Debbie Stabenow, she has a Food Supply Protection Act that would address a lot of all the things we're all the things we're talking about here, right? What do you do when you have massive shifts in where people are purchasing food and what size it's coming in, things like that? You know, how can we make sure there's a a steady supply of of food to food banks? Um, you know, how do we make sure nonprofits have um, reimbursement for the cost to move food um, when there's extra food coming their way? But you're exactly right. You know, the additional food that's here um, uh, that's been funded in the Families First Coronavirus Response Act and the CARES Act and now in the Coronavirus Relief Act passed in December. That's been great, but it's still not enough to replace what's lost from USDA's food purchase and distribution program, AKA trade mitigation. And so the other half of this and um, what we've been talking with um, the Hill about and members of Congress and, uh, you know, USDA and the incoming Biden administration is, you know, their actions USDA can take administratively to make sure food banks have a steady supply of food. But we're also saying, look, you know, like our ask for um, whatever, relief and recovery, relief and economic stimulus legislation is passed, whether in this one or the next one is, you know, increase food assistance to food banks by 900 million through September 2022. So there is a long, you know, leeway to plan out purchases. USDA can forward purchase before crops are even planted this summer, right? We the up and the down of what food's available when, what money is available when. It's hard for food banks to plan. It's hard for USDA to plan, and it would be much more helpful for the growers and producers that we want to help in communities to plan out these purchases too. You know, why not buy? You know, why not extend the trade mitigation and call it COVID mitigation? Plan out the purchases for an entire year to year and a half. You know, so that everyone knows what to get. Um, you know, remake the Trump administration's Farmers to Families food boxes and add produce boxes as something you can order through TFAP. Why not? Right? Yep. USDA has yep. proven that they can work with distributors to do that, you know. Um, and, you know, there's a, I think that would really help a lot of, especially crop producers as well. It would help the dairy industry. Um, 
And I think it would help augment a lot of strong state partnerships that are already on the ground. And um, of course, just to just to put in front of everyone once again, all of that supply chain help translates to help for hungry people in the community, right? Exactly. That, that it's good. It's good for so many reasons, but fundamentally. What we're about is making sure that our community who needs access to fresh and healthy food has that access in the way that they need it. And so many people want more fresh fruits and vegetables. They're available, but it takes a little planning with, as you said, some of the challenges in the food supply chain. And so let's do the smart thing. I mean, you know, if, when it, with your home budget, you know what you need and you figure it out. And if you know it's going to take a little longer, you buy it sooner. I mean, it's yeah. it's not complicated, right? I mean, even for a guy like me, I could figure it out. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I will say that, um, you know, the incoming USDA staff has wasted no time. Um, you know, Deputy Undersecretary for Food and Nutrition Service, Stacey Dean, has instructed her team at the Food and Nutrition Service to work with us to, you know, yeah. All the food banks are going to be getting a survey soon. Please answer the next survey that we send you because it's going to be about what types of foods, you know, would you want to see um, USDA purchasing so that we can get this, um, you know, get this money spent as soon as possible. We know that the need is out there. So, um, you know, it's a, just a little bit of a, a hiccup in terms of, um trying to make this uh, the purchases work as smoothly as possible. You know, Jerry, you talked about the decrease from December to January. We're seeing that same nationally. You know, it, I think it's gone from 157 million pounds through TFAP to 81 million pounds through right. TFAP in one month. So, right. um, you know, we definitely know that there's been an impact. And, you know, the off and on of the Farmers to Families food boxes and whether or not food banks are able to participate in it, you know, that's been fairly challenging as well. And I don't want to discount the assistance that the program has provided, but it's hard to plan as well when you don't know how long something is going to be there and what deliveries to expect and when. So well, it's, it's um, great, Carrie, that you guys have a bit of a counter proposal to uh, enhance this bill and uh, ever how it ends up. Uh, we know you guys are going to be standing in the gap for the rest of us. So as always, Anything that Michigan can do to help uh, your team in government relations at Feeding America in D.C., you know we're ready to do that. And uh, I promised you when I texted you early this morning that I'd only keep you 10 minutes. I'm going to keep my word. Carrie Calvert, Vice President for Government Relations in Agriculture and Nutrition and General USDA Expert. <laughs> I appreciate it. And one last plug, if you go to uh, feedingamericaaction.org. We have um, our priorities um, under the legislation tab. We have our priorities for um, the COVID-19 relief and economic stimulus legislation, as well as our priorities for the new administration and how they can address hunger. So I'll send you guys that link, but you know your listeners can go to feedingamericaaction.org um, and learn more there. So thanks guys so much. I appreciate it. Jerry and I are back in a moment to wrap up this show.
Jerry, what a show. I mean, uh, we covered it from the insider's insider to the insider. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, the people who are doing this work and and how dedicated and smart and insightful they are, both Juan and now Kerry, uh, right up to date on uh, the information in regard to uh, the $1.9 trillion proposal from President Biden and what that means to us and uh, what it doesn't mean at this point. But um, what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts really go back to we're still managing a pandemic. We're still managing the impact of it. And when we heard, you know, Juan talk about the challenges that brings to the to the grocers who are the smaller grocers in the cities, and then we heard some of the challenges it's bringing to the USDA and the different relief packages coming through that aren't necessarily timely or complete, and, and what it means to food banks that have to deal with that food supply chain. Every, you know, inch of that food supply chain and how we've got to adjust pretty much constantly to these changing realities. But I will say this, um, that's what we're here to do. So it's never a complaint. It's more of a let's just understand what we've got in front of us and let's get it done. And I think one of the things I've always enjoyed about food banking is that's how it's always been. We're people that want to get things done. We know that there's suffering in our community because of food insecurity. And whatever it takes is what we're going to do. And we're still going to do that. And I, I appreciate uh, both of our guests today for their pieces in at least giving us something that we can do to continue to make a difference. Right. I, I, I agree with you. I really appreciated Juan's perspective on uh, the owner. We don't normally, we haven't really had that perspective. He grew up in a family that owned uh, two grocery stores. Uh, I did think it's a little humorous that he, he looked at that, the lifestyle and the work ethic and the amount of hours his dad was putting in to grow those businesses. And he said, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, the, the food industry is a rough one. From farm to fork, baby, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And, you know, we understand, too, that there are certainly uh, lots of items in a grocery store that the margins are, are pretty slim. And um, if that wasn't the case, then uh, our retail rescue operations across our food banks wouldn't be as robust as they are. So um, it's, it's good to hear it from that perspective as well. I enjoyed that. Um, and, you know, it's about, it's a business, right? So you, a business has to make money. Uh, it has to add value into the community. And uh, that's what I think is, um, was a nice perspective from one today that we really hadn't had on the show before. Yeah, the idea that it's the most democratic institution in the country. It's like, okay, well, we haven't tried that competition, have we? What's the most democratic institution in the country? Nice to hear Juan say it's our, it's our independent grocers uh, and, and why that is. So very interesting and, uh, and important, right, because food access um, is a huge part of how you solve food insecurity. So... So nice to have allies and, and people in that, in that part of the food supply chain trying to work on behalf of the community. Well, and I think the point you made, too, in that conversation was that, you know, they're in places where 
access to food is often very difficult. And yeah. so I, I think that that's, uh, they have a role to play. And like it's like what you said, it takes a lot of people to solve this problem, and there's a lot of smart people working on it, so we're thankful. That's exactly right. Time for a little food for thought. It's been said that without hard work, the only thing that grows are weeds. It's amazing how true this statement is. Whether it's grass in the yard, corn in the field, or children in the neighborhood, without attention and intention, the only thing that grows is what you don't want. Weeds. Weeds rob the chance for good things to grow in their place. When it comes to children, it's far easier to grow a child than it is to mend an adult. And it starts with food. Access to healthy, nutritious food will give a child a chance to grow, to learn, to develop into what they could be. Food is not the only thing the child will need, but they certainly can't develop without it. They won't grow. They won't develop as they could. That's why we're working to keep food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.